You're listening to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, Episode 5. You're listening to the Relationship Centered Learning Podcast, a podcast to inspire and empower you to be a difference maker in a dysfunctional educational system. Hear weekly from adults and students who are having a radical impact in the education space as they share from their minds and hearts, giving us practical tools that we can take back to our classrooms and campuses. Here to take you outside the educational box is author, disruptor, and your host, Kevin Curtis. On today's episode, I interview Jonathan Grant Brown, a program manager with Avid for Higher Education. He is a motivational speaker and an educator with a powerful personal story. Out of all the interviews to this point, this has been the most powerful testimony to date. Jonathan will share his revelation of the impact of reflective learning and take us through an activity called 321. And lastly, he will be leaving us with being reminded to not give up on our most challenging kids may be the only hope in giving them a future inside of education and outside. I can't wait any longer for you to hear his story. So let's get started. Before we get into today's episode, if you really like the GTKY concept of connections before content, but you thought to yourself, where do I get those good questions at? And you're thinking, well, I'm still doing virtual teaching versus in-person teaching, and I just want to connect with my kids, but I'm not sure what questions to ask. What we've done for you is created a free resource of 25 GTKY questions that you can immediately download and go back into your virtual setting or your in-person classroom setting to make a difference of getting to know your students before you dive into the content. All you have to do is head over to our website at rclfirst.com, sign up for our newsletter, and you will get immediate access to 25 GTKY questions that you can go back into the classroom and started putting connections before content. So let's get right back into the show. I am blessed to have an amazing educator and human being on the show today, Mr. Jonathan Brown. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, man. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate you inviting me. Absolutely. So just like every episode, we always want to start off with connections before we dive into today's content. And we do that as we just model in the classroom. We do that in what we call the GTKY format. Jonathan, I'm going to ask you five simple, just get to know you questions. And then you're going to do the flip five back at me and just ask me five questions before we get started. So simple number question number one, Jonathan, how do you like your eggs? Oh man, how do I like my over medium is what I always say, but I don't know that I like them like that. That is the way I order them. But I will eat eggs any way they come, hard-boiled, scrambled. I like to make omelets. That's probably, if I had to say I like my eggs, like omelets. Okay. I love that, <laughs> man. That's a great answer. All right. So what's your favorite candy bars? My daughter would say Twix because she always, when she sees Twix, she picks one up for me. Uh-huh. But I think that's because we can share it. But I like candy bars. Any kind of candy bar is probably my favorite candy. Any candy bars. Okay. Favorite pet? What would be your favorite kind of pet? I'm a... Dog guy, but I don't have dogs. My first dog was a a Jack Russell Terrier. Her name was Coda, and I love that thing to death. I had her in college, uh, but I don't currently have any pets. My last puppy that I did have, her name was Becky, and she passed away. So we decided as a family, we were not going to have dogs again. So but okay. I'm definitely a dog guy. Okay. Question number four: uh, What's your favorite thing to do outdoors? Drive, which is probably weird, but I love getting in my truck and driving long road trips, listening to podcasts, um, talking to the family on long road trips and stopping at different. We have uh, some special stops along I-35 that we like to hit up all the time. Good deal. No, I love it. <laughs> Last question. What's your best way of learning? Are you an auditory? Do you love to read? Do you le- How do you like to learn? 
I am multimodal. I have over the years developed an affinity for trying it in a different way. So I like if you, if we can bring a variation, it doesn't necessarily have to be all the variations in one learning environment, but I like it being switched up. I like it being changed up. If we're getting a lot of information for a long period of time, I'd love a chance to get up and start creating. If we're creating for a lot, I'd love a chance to sit down and reflect and focus on what I've learned. So I like the mix. There you go. That's five, brother. Hit me five. the five good questions. Okay. Let me ask you five. I don't really have these prepared, so I'm just going to go off the top of the head. Kevin, if you had an opportunity to switch lives with a person for one day, who would you switch with? Oh, man, that's a really good one. Ooh, I would say I was a coach. And I always liked Bo Jackson. Oh, was such a, Bo Jackson was such a, not just a, a, an amazing human being, a great athlete playing both sports and something like that. But I don't know yeah. why, for whatever reason, like whew, <laughs> Bo Jackson came up, Bo Jackson, of course, Michael Jordan or somebody like that. But, yeah. but I don't know. Bo Jackson just popped up my brain. I'll go with him. That's cool. What's the best dish that you can cook uh, for family members or friends? Oh my goodness. Best dish that I can cook. And so what's crazy is I can cook. My mom did a great job of helping me cook growing up. So best dish. I don't know. A lot of, I I would tell you a lot of people just like my steak. I'm simple room, let it get to room temperature, just salt and pepper. But I believe it's because I use cast iron. Yeah. Oh yeah. So that's sear. And and I certainly don't overcook it. And the fact that sears and I literally put a timer on, I'll be like, all right, what measure the uh, two and a half minutes on each side or three minutes on each side medium to medium rare is a perfect good steak for me but yeah a steak is is probably what i get asked can you make that steak again that sounds great yes so you mentioned your mom prepared you in cooking what would be uh what would be a phrase or a, a saying that your mom used to tell you when you were little oh my god she would wake me up every morning by opening the door and she would say this school time (laughs) <laughs> Kevin, it's school time. It was the weirdest thing, but that's ex- that's exactly. And then if I did wake up, she'd be like, "It's school time." The whole tone would change. Started all like school time, but yeah, I, wow, wow, Josh. I would tell you, uh, Jonathan. I'm sorry that, that wow, you just brought it back memory on there. I hadn't gone there, there in go. a long time, Jonathan. That was a really good question. All right, I think that was uh, number three. Yes, sir. All right, so I got two more for you. I like that. When, when you mentioned the school time call, I remember my mom used to tell us at night when we would talk as, as boys, we'd all stay up late and talk. And she'd say, if you don't go to bed not, at night now, the moon's going to come out of the sky and hit you in the eye. And it took me forever to figure out what that was about. But I think she stole it from that song. When the moon hits your eye. <laughs> yeah. But I'm curious to discover where you see yourself, not like in the future, but I want to see where you see yourself in the eyes of others. So if, if someone were to say, this is how I remember Kevin, and this is the impact that he made on my life. What would you want those people to say? Ooh, that's a good question. I would think, first of all, humble, servant, leader, servant, give, joyful giver. I, I am all about other people first and just humble, happy, joyful giver, and uh, a believer in Christ, brother. That's it right there, man. That, that, just that's cool. put that on my tombstone and I'm good. All right. So one last question, and this is something I don't think a lot of us get a chance to do, but I'm curious to discover if you had a chance to go back in time and give yourself a high five for something that you did well. Maybe it was something that people didn't recognize, or maybe it was something that a lot of people celebrated. What would be that one point in life where you would go back and high five yourself for a job well done? Wow. That's a tough one, man. And the reason being is there's so many more regrets and reflections than, yeah, high, yeah. than, than high five moments. Right. I right? Feel you. I feel yeah. You. So it's, whew, 
I would say I, there was like I was teaching one time and and I was a, a I taught science, integrated physics, biology, chemistry, and I always remember this time. And somebody asked me another question one time, and I went back to the same memory. I had this girl who was who was struggling with balancing chemical equations, and here's the thing. I was struggling on figuring out how to balance chemical equations as the teacher. And as I was researching it, there was something that I came across called the box card method, where you actually drew boxes around the chemical equations, and then you could try to move the caboose or move the engine and different things like that. And I was utilizing this strategy with the student after school in kind of a tutoring situation, and the light clicked on for her. But Jonathan, when it clicked on, it really clicked on. And it was one of those, unfortunately, few times as an educator that you knew, like my teaching directly impacted somebody in a way academically that the light came on and now they could successfully, because then when she was like going up to the board and she was doing them and then I I was just like, you got it. And I left thinking that would be a high five moment because I was like, I just made a difference in a kid's life academically, not, not just the other ways, right? Holy cow, I'm a teacher and I just taught somebody something that I had to get taught um, as a teacher. So yeah, I think that would be my high five moment, man. I really appreciate you sharing that, man. You, you mentioned right before you did share it that it was difficult to come up with a high five. And I think it's important to allow people the space to exercise a reflection on the high fives because we spend a lot of time focusing on things that we wish we could have changed. But if we recognize the things that we do well, it's going to help influence who we're going to become. And right when I asked you that question, I wrote teaching. And the story you told me was about teaching because the things you did well, you ultimately became in the future, a Mm. good teacher, a good educator. All right, listeners, if if Jonathan did not already drop a mic in the GTK live section <laughs> of this episode, man, Let's all the it, man. We, we are already there, man. I'm super excited. So just like we do in the classroom, just like we do on the show, we want to get the chance to know each other. So teachers look for that opportunity to use just those simple GTKY moments and GTKY, GTKY questions to get your know, to get to know your uh, students and for administrators to get to know your staff as you're getting back into the classroom. Hey, man, Jonathan, I, you, man, Man, you already got my wheel spinning and just thinking like that. So, um, like, where did just that, just to start there, where did that little thought process, like, how did you develop that skill set or, or that even that idea? Where did that come yeah. from? Yeah. Yeah. So, I'm big, I'm a big, as an educator, big proponent of this idea that learning happens in the reflection. And so, when that resonated with me, I was probably in grad school when the light bulb went off for me. And I thought, if learning takes place when we reflect, why don't we spend more time teaching people and allowing people the space? to reflect authentically. And so out of that conversation, a few friends of mine got together and we put together these three questions. If you could go back in time at any point in your life, what would be three points in your life you would give yourself a high five? And so people struggle with that and they think through, oh, I would do this, I would do that, I would do this, okay. And then once they have their three high fives, we asked them to then move on to two points in life that they would go back to a younger self and whisper into their ear. It could be words of advice, words of encouragement. It could be, don't date that boy or that girl or that person. It could be anything and everything but answers to math tests and lottery numbers. And so they write down two whispers. And then the final thing is what is one thing you absolutely will accomplish in your future. And so the goal is to teach students and learners how to reflect intentionally because the high fives will help us recognize things we did well because we want to repeat those things, right? The things we do well, we want to repeat them. And ultimately the things we do well, we enjoy and we're going to enjoy in the future if we decide to make that a career. 
Now, the whispers we always get stuck on, because when I tell students or, or people who I'm working with, what would be two whispers, inevitably someone stands up and says, I wouldn't whisper anything to myself because the decisions I made in my past made me who I am today. And my response to that is the whispers aren't intended to change our past because no one's invented a time machine yet and I'm still waiting on it. The whispers are intended to make us aware of how we would deal with conflicts, obstacles, and barriers because what's going to happen in the future? Conflicts, obstacles, and barriers. And so the better you are at reflecting on how I would have that conversation differently or how I would prepare for that experience differently, the more equipped you're going to be when similar situations face you in the future. And then it all culminates on this one thing you absolutely will accomplish in the future because we got to keep our eyes fixated on this goal of moving forward with this one question is what I'm doing today contributing to who I want to become tomorrow. If not, then I need to make an adjustment. And so I share, I share examples of my three high fives, my two whispers and my future to show how it transpires and how you can take more ownership of the trajectory of your future by reflecting intentionally. So let me just ask you, is that something that you would be comfortable and is that something that would naturally fit in today's show if you, you shared what you just talked about for you, your personal Oh, yeah, I, I, absolutely. Let's I mean, go there then. I, yeah, I, I, you it. got me. You drew me okay. in, Jonathan. So now I, I, I know a little bit more, just a little bit about your backstory. But of course, I want people to learn you throughout the show. But let's go there with your three. Take us through Jonathan Brown's that thought process. My three, two, one. Yeah. yeah oh, there you go. Sorry. Three, two, one. Okay. There it is. All right. No you're three, two, one. <laughs> Let me think for a second. My three high fives. So the first one would be, I think the first one would be making the choir in elementary school because I was a kid that could never shut up. <laughs> and I found a place to put my voice in, in the right place where I can use it effectively. The second one would obviously be graduating with my master's degree. That was a huge one that a lot of people, by the time it was happening, everyone expected it to happen, but way early on, no one expected it to happen. And then uh, my third high five would be proposing and then marrying my wife, proposing to and then marrying my wife. That was a significant high five for me. My two whispers, I would go back to my younger self and I would whisper into my ear, tell mom and dad that you love them more frequently. Now, I still have my parents with me, but I did a lot of damage. When I ended up moving into my parents' home. I was a very angry young man and I punched a lot of holes in the walls. There's a, a bunch of home interior pictures that are covering holes in my parents' walls. And I ran and I cursed and I fought every second that I got. And I, it was because early on, I convinced myself that I couldn't let people love me. And so if I made them hate me first, then I wouldn't run the risk of having them love me and care for me. And so I would whisper to myself, tell mom and dad that you love them more. And then the second whisper would be to stick out and learn how to deal with conflict. Because as a, I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but as a foster kid, you learn very quickly that you, you don't have to stay here. You can pack your bags and leave. And so anytime conflict presented itself to me as a youngster, my natural reaction was, I'm going to call my caseworker and I'm going to leave. And so I never exercised or experienced true conflict without running away from it. And so as an adult, one of the hardest things to do is to engage in relationship conflict and not just grab my keys, jump in the truck and, and drive away. And so the whisper would be, stay a little bit longer in that conflict and figure out how to navigate it, right? Because that's a gap that I missed as an adult. And then my future is, the one thing I absolutely want to accomplish in my future is I want people to recognize me or know me and I want people to say he was a great husband and a phenomenal dad. That That's the kind of legacy I want to leave behind. Yeah. No, man, that's powerful. 
then let's give people a little bit deeper dive into your past, who you yeah. are as a person, man. So I'm just going to let you naturally take us back to obviously your childhood and, and, and where you started, but yet we will eventually get to where you're at now. So in, in, introduce the listeners to just who Jonathan Brown is as a person, human being. Yeah. So goofy, funny, loud, energetic, big was always a word associated with me when I was a little kid. Obviously now I'm a big guy too. But I was the kid who could not go unnoticed. Like you would not be in my vicinity and not recognize Jonathan. But when I was really little, I was probably about five years old. My mother took my little brother and I to a park in Lampasas, Texas. And this was one of those real country, country towns. It's so country. Let me tell you about Lampasas real quick, put it into perspective. It's so country, at least to me. It's so country that every year they had this thing called the Rattlesnake Roundup. And that's exactly what they did. They would round up rattlesnakes from the woods, bring them into town, have this little festival all around and everything. So it was a country town. <laughs> uh, but my mom took my little brother and I to a park. We were hanging out, having a good time, doing what little kids do. And Tiger and I, we were the kind of kids that played relatively rough with one another. We were little knuckleheads. So we were always trying to figure out a way to play a fighting game. And the one game we would always play is Power Rangers. And the rules of Power Rangers the first step is you got to pick the color Power Ranger you're going to be. So I would always be the black one and I would make my little brother be the pink one. And so we're running around playing Power Rangers, doing our thing, and we're recruiting kids to play with us and having a good old time. And after a while, I noticed that my mom is walking across the park and running wasn't something I was too fond of as a little kid. And so she had some distance on us and I thought we were going to be in trouble. So we tried to hustle up and catch up to her. And by the time we got to the other side of the park, she was already across the road. And we knew as little kids that you're not supposed to cross the road without an adult's hand. So we stopped and we're like, mom, where are you going? And she proceeded to explain to us that she was going to go uh, to a Winn-Dixie, which is like an old school grocery store here in Texas. I don't even know if they're still around, but in some places they are. Uh, she was going to get some snacks for a picnic. So my little chunky self was like, bet we're going to have some snacks. We're going to have a picnic and I'm excited. So I'm running back to the, I'm lying. I ain't running. I'm walking back to the park to catch up with my friends. <laughs> And, and, and to convince them that they want to stick around and keep playing because my mom's about to get all these snacks and everything for this picnic. So we continue to have fun. New kids show up, new parents show up. My mom's gone doing her thing. And after a while, the kids start to leave with their parents. And it started to get a little later in the evening. And some parents that were there were asking us, hey, where's your mom? And we're like, oh, she's over there. She'll be back soon. And it's a small town. It's not weird. I guess it is. We're two little kids in the park by themselves, but we weren't by ourselves. There were like other kids and other adults until that night and everybody was gone and we figured out that i guess i don't even know if i figured out when i was that little that she wasn't coming back i just knew we couldn't leave the park and so my little brother and i we spent the next two nights sleeping at that park that we found a concrete tunnel that they had hadn't buried in the ground yet and we just we said this is going to be our fort so we're going to spend the night here in our fort and the first night was fun we were playing around making jokes and stuff building up our fort and we passed out really late at night woke up really early in the morning and crawled out, started playing. Parents showed up. Same thing, same routine happened. But by the second day, obviously somebody called the authorities. And by that second night, some police officers were in the park looking for these two little boys. And one of the officers found us. He shined his light in the tunnel and was like, what are y'all doing? And we're trying to pretend like he couldn't see us. So we're like tucked back in the tunnel. Boys, y'all get out of here. What are y'all doing? And so we come out and at, at five years old, like my concept of what was happening was very limited. My association with the police was we we were going to be in trouble because anytime they came to our house, our mom or her friends were in trouble. So we thought we were going to jail. So we started crying and he stopped crying. We start crying even more. And 
eventually I was able to convince him that we ran away from the babysitter. That's why I was like, we ran away from the babysitter. That's why we're by ourselves. Because I didn't want to get my mom in trouble. I didn't want them to go over to my mom's house. And I didn't know where the babysitter lived, but I knew her house was this big two-story white house right in front of this oak tree. And see, in Lampasas, there's this road. And I think it's still there today. There's this road where this oak tree is just growing up out of the road. And it's not like decoratively built around the tree. It's just like it grew and nobody cut it down. And so the officer put us in the car and took us to the house. And we get to the babysitter's house. And of course, as soon as he lets us out of the car, we run into the house. And as we go in, he goes in. And we run upstairs and start playing with the babysitter's kids. And after a while, conversations start to get louder and the babysitter starts to cry. And that's when I realized we're in trouble. Because when you're really little and your parents say, when I get back, you better be right here. Like my mama really meant that. And I thought we were in trouble because we were not where we were supposed to be, which was in that park where she left us. And the babysitter's crying. We're poking our heads out, trying to figure out what's going on. And this lady starts to call my name. And I stick my head and look down the stairs and she's like, baby, I want you to come with me. And I'm like, stranger danger, no. (laughs) And she spoke a little bit softer, stepped a few steps up the stairs. And she said, no, honey, I need you and your brother to come with me. It's going to be okay. And I wasn't convinced. But so she walks all the way up to the stairs. She puts her arm around my shoulder. She kneels down and she's, you and your brother are going to come with me for the weekend. You're going to be gone for two days. And then on Monday, I'll bring you back to your mom. Like I, I remember this conversation like it happened to me yesterday. Wow. You and your little brother are going to be with me for the weekend. You'll be gone for two days and I'll take you back to your mom on Monday. And I had no idea how long the weekend was going to take. I was only five years old. I did not know when Monday was going to get here, but I knew what back to mom meant because people used to tell us that all the time. I'm about to take you back to your mom. You're so bad. But so I made her pinky promise me that she was going to take me back. And she did. And so we got into her car and we drove away. And two days turned into about 13, 14 years growing up in foster care. Wow. Wow, brother. Oh, my goodness. And so when you talk about that whisper to yourself about dealing with conflict and dealing with those difficult things, man, I could only imagine, Jonathan, I I have no idea what that feels like. I, I have learned to try to understand. And I think one of the things that I've learned in this work is being a better listener and also Truly, people always talk about empathy, but like really trying to understand what people are going through. And I think it's difficult for us at times to put ourselves in other people's shoes if we've never been there. It is very difficult. So I've learned to not tell people, oh, I know exactly what you're feeling. No, there's no way. And I don't think that, and for me, I've learned that's not a strategy that people want to hear either. I would much rather say, I have no idea what that was like, but I can I know that obviously from what the stories that you go through and the experiences that you've had, it was not easy. And so when you're growing up in foster care, how is that impacting you as a student in the classroom? Just curious if we could go there for a second. Yeah. Yeah. So the biggest hurdle was this. Let let me frame it like this. Educators, when I was in elementary and middle school, would say, Jonathan hates school. But I tried to be in school as long as I could because I didn't want to be home wherever Mm. that was. I didn't want to be home. But I was battling with all of this turmoil inside as a little kid. And doctors were telling me that I had these mental disorders. There was all these mental things wrong with me. And what I realized years later wasn't mental disorders. It was emotional disorders, right? There was trauma happening and I did not know how to deal with it as a youngster. So I expressed that frustration and anger in the classroom. So in elementary, it would be 
the teachers would cry to the principals. I care for him the most. I do the most for him. I give him so many examples. And those are the teachers that I fought the hardest because really early on, I was probably about nine years old and I was sitting in an ISP, which is like an assessment of the foster kid. And they, when you're coming into a new home, they talk about the rules and expectations and your past behaviors and things like that in order to prepare the foster parents. And my caseworker came in with this letter from this lady named Marsha Grant. And I got excited because I knew that was my mom's name. And so she told me if I was good, the whole meeting, she would crack open the letter and she'd read it to me. And as a foster kid, the most important things you can have are pictures of your family or letters from your family, because that meant that they were still real. And one day they, you would get to see them again. And so I'm waiting for this meeting to be over and I'm you know, bouncing my leg underneath the table and I'm tapping my pen on the table. And finally, at the end, she's like, you did a really good job, Jonathan, and my foster parents leave. And we're sitting at the table and she cracks open the letter and she starts to read it. And in the letter, it says, I feel that Jonathan's life would be better lived and better afforded in foster care. And I didn't really understand what that meant. So my caseworker, she explained it to me. She said, this is your mother relinquishing her rights. She's no longer your mom. Now, for me, relinquishing your rights wasn't something that moms could do. So I thought these people were lying to me. Okay. I thought they were like not telling me the truth about it. I told myself, if I if you're going to lie to me, then I'm going to have to find my mom on my own. So I figured if I got kicked out of every place that I lived in, the only other place you could send me is back to my mom. So I would fight. I would scream. I would yell. I would get kicked out of school. I would curse. And my temper was easy to get to. That anger level, that high level of anger was real easy to get to. It took a little bit to make me go from zero to a hundred. And so when I was in school, I would find, I would seek out excuses to blow up. I would seek out conflicts. Like I would antagonize the teacher while they're up at the board. I would deliberately walk really slow in the hallway so that the bell would ring. And then I would be tardy and I would go get a tardy and try to fight with the tardy attendant about why I shouldn't be tardy. Like I sought out these conflicts because these conflicts led to conflicts at home, which led to calling the caseworker, which led to me packing my bed and moving to a new place. And so I, I figured out that when it got too much for me or I didn't like it, I could just be bad and get switched to the new. And eventually you'll move me back to my mom. And so it was really difficult in elementary school and middle school for me to behaviorally perform the way that was expected to me. Now, academically, teachers were always baffled because I was reading at a really young age. Math, I started to excel in math a lot in, in middle school. And I remember Mr. Moger, he was the sixth grade like it was before like pre-AP and all of that, but he was like the sixth grade smart kid math teacher. And I used to get sent to ISS in fourth grade all the time. And one day he was the ISS teacher and Mr. Mojo goes to me, he goes, you're going to be in my class next year. And I was like, next year I'm in fifth grade. And he's no, you're going to be in my math class next year. I was like, I can't, I'm in fifth grade next year. You're in a sixth grade teacher. And he goes, I'll fix that. And I remember fifth grade, I was in Mr. Mojo's advanced math class, sitting with all these little smart kids. And that class was hard. But I tell you what, I never got kicked out of his class. I never got in trouble. You know what I mean? Like I was busting my tail trying to prove to those other smart kids that I wasn't dumb. And he was one of the first teachers to really like recognize the behavior as not acceptable, but challenge me enough so that I didn't have enough energy to, to engage in that behavior. And then following... Mr. Mojer was Mr. Helio, who was a principal of Willow Springs. And Mr. Helio was one of those teachers or principals that, for whatever reason, she just loved the bad kids. So when the teachers would kick me out of class, I'll go straight to Mr. Helio's office and start crying. 
And at the time, I thought I was running game on her. Like, I thought I was like playing her for a fool. But the whole time she's working game on me. So I go to her office and she starts putting me to task at work. She starts putting me to organize things. She starts putting me to clean out the copier. She starts putting me doing all the, the, the work study stuff in the office. And I'm not realizing this whole time she's making me exercise these skills that I need to develop in order to be a productive you know, community member when I'm not going to be in class learning. And so by the end of it all, I end up being at a conference. I'm an adult, got my master's degree. I'm at a conference sitting at a table. And here come Mr. Healy walking up to the table. And I'm like, is she going to recognize me? And she sits down at the table and we all start introducing, you know how when you're at a conference, people introduce themselves and, yeah. and, and, and she introduced herself in the schools that she taught at. And I said, hey, I'm Jonathan. I'm from Colleen. And she goes, stop. Willow Springs Elementary. And I was like, yeah, you remember. She's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, I'm about to keynote. And, her, and she was like, you know what? I'm not surprised. I am not surprised. Like I knew it. And I went up there and delivered my speech and came back and she was crying. She's I knew you were going to be great. I knew you were going to be awesome. And, and that was her belief in me. And I never knew that as a little kid. So she behaved in a way that I was going to be great and awesome when she interacted with me. But I never knew that. So all of that was instilled when I was an elementary kid, still being bad, but the expectation was instilled, right? So I moved through all of these grades with people instilling in me that you're going to be great. You're going to do good things, even though my behavior and my actions weren't really reflected that. Wow. Yeah, because earlier when you said, just like her, anyone else who would have known me primarily and early in school would never have said when you gave yourself a high five for the master's. Yeah. You would have said they would have never seen that coming based on the student that you were exhibiting with behavior, but yet yeah. academics and you're, you're a hot mess. So they're out right. like, so they're like, there's no way this kid would have ever gotten to that level of academic success and even achievement in life based on what they were observing at the time. And I'll tell you, Kevin, I think a lot of people ask me all the time, what is it that they did? What did they do when you were being at your worst? that eventually allowed you to be at your best. And it wasn't the thing that the one thing that they did. It was the simple fact that the commitment to ensuring I had the opportunity to, to, to be great one day down the line, they never took that away from me. And there's decisions that we can make as educators and as administrators that will take those opportunities away from kids based right. off of their behaviors. And sure. so they never made those choices. Like I should have been shipped off to alternative school multiple times and principal stood up and fought and said, no, he will not. No, I'll put my name on it or I'll make these accommodations. He will not. So each time there was a, an instance where the opportunity for a brighter future could be taken away from me, educators stood firm and ensured that it wasn't going to go away. No. And, and I will tell you that light did not come on for me till towards the end of my career. As I mentioned earlier, when we were piloting restorative practices and I was having to put on a new set of lens to see students who were coming from a variety of backgrounds, including traumatic and foster care, right? And, and one of the things that I recognize is when we piloted that first year in sixth grade, they had given me this young man, African-American, overage, special ed, economically disadvantaged. He lived with grandmother. There was just, just all these things. If you check the boxes, he, and he had 
already gone to the alternative school. I don't know how many multiple times in elementary and even in sixth grade. And they were, and oh, forgot, forgot they were retaining him, Jonathan. So they were bringing him back in sixth grade and he was going to be pilot, the, the part of the pilot group for that first year. So when I sat down with him, much like your educators were doing for you, not taking away those opportunities for success. I literally had to have a conversation with him, Jonathan. I said, all right, listen, Q, here's what we're going to do. And I, I remember having this conversation. You don't need to understand what chapter 37 is, but let me tell you what chapter 37 says. If you do this and this, I have no control. You have to go back. These are what I call mandatory placements back at the DAP. And so what I tried to tell him was is, as long as you don't do this and this, the mandatory, drugs, alcohol, weapons, these types of things, and it's just behavior related, I'm going to do everything I can to keep you on this campus. I changed math teachers. I did this. I did everything. I, 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 would, I, I found myself expanding beyond the horizons of the typical traditional consequences that I was using on the student prior. And, you know, seriously, I love to share this data. He went from 54 referrals the year before to four. Wow. And when I asked, and so when I asked Jonathan, when I asked him, I don't, I think there was a lot of things happening, but here's what I always say. Of course, he was a year older. He finally got in seventh grade and for seventh grade, he's a great athlete. He finally got to participate in athletics. So I know as a former athlete and as coach, I do know that can be transformative for some kids, but you know what I asked him? What was the biggest difference? This is the craziest thing. He said, you just, you talk to me different. You treated me different. Like you, you just treated me different than you had treated me the year before. And I was like, really? He goes, and then you got Miss Washington to believe in me. And then, cause so what happens with the Jonathan Browns, right? Is it gets, your reputation goes across the grade levels yeah. across the campus. So yeah. let's just go there for a second. The hardest part for me as an administrator was how can you give this kid what you were talking about, not taking away those opportunities? <laughs> it's hard for us to give clean slates, but I need you to give this kid a, a, a real chance. But it's different. And, I think it's, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no. I think it's, it's different than, because there's a point, even with my own child, man, even with my own daughter, she's going into second grade and we struggled a lot in kindergarten and in first grade. And it's, there comes a point where you as an educator sit back and you're like, I've done everything I can. I've literally bent over backwards and I've done every can. If you can be strong enough to never to, to feel that way and then say, screw that and keep going, that's the trick. No, that's the trick. If, no, you, can, you're if right. you can just screw that feeling that like I'm at my wit's end, I can't do it anymore. Somebody else has to take this. If you can feel that way and say that and then say, you know what? I take that back. Let's put it on the shelf. I'm going to keep going. That's the trick. No, you are exactly right. But what's amazing is you're expressing that and acknowledging that and experiencing that earlier than I did, Jonathan. That's what my awakening and my epiphanies were happening the last part of my career. And I, I, I don't know why. I can't excuse my behavior. I used to tell kids to kick rocks. I was no, yeah. we led the district with 1,149 types of suspension. I tell people I was a cyborg of suspension. I know how to suspend a kid. Yeah. I know how to get rid of the Jonathan Browns in a heartbeat. And so the hard part of what you just described is finding. So I started for Q, I started picking, handpicking the teachers. And I would have to go. Before I would put them in the schedule and I would say, hey, let me talk to you about Q. And they'd be like, nope. And I'm like, hold up. Let, let's talk. 
let's talk about what this could look like if he could act right. If I know his reputation, I know that's what I'm saying. Let's leave the reputation at the door, the threshold, and let's give him an opportunity. I'm not going to, but I'm not going to say he's going to be perfect, but I'm going to be there in your corner to support you. So that means if you have to send him out for a quick de, just de-escalating for a few minutes to give yourself a break, send him to me, but just know he's coming back that I don't want to do schedule changes. And I'm in, I'm asking you to do exactly what you just described, Jonathan. I just didn't realize that's what I was asking right. them to do right. is I'm like, I'm asking you to not give up on him. What was crazy is look at this kid, Jonathan. He then goes from 54 referrals to four. Then he only gets one, his entire eighth grade year. He, it, during his junior year, I think is when he finally took enough credits to graduate back on time. He graduates. He's a productive citizen. He's actually working in a restaurant like as a sous chef and all these different types of things. He gets employee of the year. Mm. He's this, he, he has a brand new car. He, he, and he's, he's those kids that you look in life. Now he's not getting his master's, but he is being a master in life because he right. is now one of those kids. And when I talked to him, he reached out to me at 19 years old a year ago and said, I want to start working with you. And I was blown away. I was like, what do you, and he was like, I don't, I, I, I know what those things did for me. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I could talk to the students at 19. And I said, no, your, your voice at 19 is way more powerful than mine at 50. So yeah. I brought him back just to be the student voice. And when we would do trainings, he would get up and give a testimony. He That's would talk good. to the adults individually during small, great, small, small breakouts and different things. But I love his story was simple. As you said, we just didn't give up no matter what. And so you get through elementary, you get through high school and middle school. Now you're into high school, right? Because you had some transformative experiences in high school. Did you not? If I'm not. Oh, absolutely. So can you take us there and and then we'll get to who Jonathan is currently, but let's take me through that high school. So so it, it started in eighth grade because we had this opportunity to take Spanish in eighth grade. And, and take this class. It was a college prep class called AVID. And so it, had, it was just getting introduced to Colleen Independent School District my eighth grade year. And we kind of, I think it was my seventh grade year when it got introduced. And we were all like, oh, no, that's for the dumb kids. I'm not going to be in there. And then eighth grade, the reputation was like, oh, that's for all the smart kids. And I was like, I'm not going to be in there. And so I, I convinced my counselor. I was like, I'll take Spanish, but I don't want to take AVID. You're not going to put me in AVID. And so I took Spanish with and I was able to get like high school credit or whatever. But what's what started that journey of putting me off the track, the negative track that I was on and on this track to success was there were systems designed to create opportunities for students to excel and then to move on to college. And for a long time, those systems were set only for certain populations of students. Now, I as an adult, I recognized that it wasn't a collection of people who sat around the table and said, okay, we're going to create this pathway for these kids and we're going to put these kids in it. But because of our habits and our practices, it ended up filtering for only a certain set of kids. And what that's what our school district did when they adopted AVID was they opened up the floodgates. They said, if there is an academic barrier to this track, then we're going to create systems to help kiddos overcome those academic barriers and get on this track. That's the teacher talk of it, right? The world talk of it for me was in seventh grade, I was getting kicked out of class all the time. I was getting in trouble. I was the kid who was always popping off. I was bigger 
So, you know, I was the baddest kid in school. I was bad on the football field. So I had a reputation. I was popular. Seventh grade, I get my last chance. A principal tells you, if you get kicked out of class again, I'm going to have to send you to the alternative school. It's out of my hands. So I get kicked out and I'm sitting in the hallway waiting for campus PD to come. And here comes Amy Reynolds. She was an eighth grade pre-AP algebra one teacher, right? She come clocking down the hallway. Now, in my middle school, there was the sixth grade wing, the seventh grade wing, and the eighth grade wing. The eighth graders had the run of the whole school, but they typically stayed in their wing. Seventh graders, we were like the middle child. We were trying to be tough, but we weren't really tough. And the sixth graders were just out of the babies. But you did not venture into a wing that wasn't your grade. Miss Reynolds comes down the eighth grade hallway, and I hear her clacking. She comes and sees me sitting at the at in front of my classroom waiting for campus PD, and she goes, what's going on? And I'm like, what you mean? She's like, how are you doing? I'm like, I can't be doing too good. I'm out here in the hallway. This is literally what it means, not doing good. But she said, get up and come with me. So I get up. I start walking with her. And I notice we're going to the eighth grade wing. So I'm trying to explain to her. I'm like, miss, I got a yellow on my ID badge. Yellow does not go down that hallway. I can't go in there. She turns the corner. We walk straight into her pre-AP Algebra 1 class. And she says, sit down. And so I sit down. And she tells the whole class. I'm a seventh grader. She tells the whole class, this is Jonathan. He's going to be joining us for the rest of the year. He's already ahead of most of you. So y'all better catch up. And I'm like, what? No. But you see, I couldn't be embarrassed. Like, I wasn't going to let these kids think that I was dumb. So I'm grinding it. Like, I'm trying hard. I'm paying attention. I'm asking questions. I convinced my foster parents to let me stay after school for tutoring. Like, I am busting my tail. And she passes back the first test that I ever took from her. And I'm livid. I got like a 68 or something or like 70 something. I like barely passed. I don't know what it was. It was not a good grade in my head for as hard as I was working. And I slide the test off my desk and I'm like, miss, you lied to me. And she goes by, she picks it up and she puts it on. She said, what do you mean I lied to you? I said, you said I could do this and this is stupid. I can't. And she proceeds to explain to me that the class average was like a 40 something, which meant I was doing better than half. And she started to explain to me about how I didn't need to make an A. I just needed to keep increasing this to show her that I'm learning what I needed to learn. And so I bought in. I bought into this idea that it wasn't about me being smart. It was about me working, not necessarily working really hard, but working hard the right way to keep increasing my grade. So I bought into this concept and I ended up pounding it off. But what she did was that day when she got me out of that hallway and put me in her class, was she literally took me off the path to prison. Because I was going to go to alternative school. I was going to run that alternative school. I was going to get arrested and I was going to be in juvenile detention. But she took me off that path of prison and she put me onto a path to college. Because if now, you weren't can, taking pre-AP algebra one by eighth grade, you were not on the college track. Absolutely. No, I learned in Oakland, the difference sometimes between selling drugs and not is algebra. algebra. You know, yeah. Reading so, first in fourth uh, grade right. and then algebra. So let me, can I pause there for a second? Stay there for one minute. Okay. Relationships. We're all about relationships and you have to at least reflect and realize that teacher who walked down that hallway and saw you there clacking on her shoes and they get her. They're also, not only did she challenge you, but she also had to build some type of relationship. Oh yeah. She wasn't a stranger to me. Like she was always in the hallway asking me, how you doing? How's your day been? And I'm like, yo, why are you bugging me? You're an eighth grade teacher. But I knew her name. I knew her face. She was always like, Oh, cheering for us on the football field. Like I knew who she was and we had a relationship. I just tried to avoid her all the time because she was too nosy. But it was because of that relationship that I was able to buy into the ideas that she was feeding me. And I took a hold of it and started becoming successful. 
Okay. See, that's where, and for me, just being relationship centered, I, I was like, I love the story, but I'm like, we've got to at least acknowledge there's something oh, there. You know, yeah. And so just stay there for one more second. I listened to that because I want educators to hear what you just said. What did she do? She was talking to me. She asked me questions. She, she engaged conversations with me when I didn't. She came to our games. Yeah. 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 And so it, I always say it's, it's, it's not that difficult if you really look at it to build a relationship with a kid in a school. Mm-hmm. I just say you have to model it first. Like kids aren't going to walk up to you as Jonathan Brown and be like, hey, miss, I really want to get a chance to know you. I think you can change my future. And a kid like you who is on the peripheral, on the boundaries of on the outside of like behavior and choices and those types of things. It's those adults that like you were, you had for her that I started to see and I started to ask teachers to do the same thing. You just need to get to know them. Yeah, and, and, and ask them on a regular basis. Don't just say hello one time. Say hello to them every day. Talk to them. Go to their games. Do it. Just be around them. But I love when you said it, she was just being nosy. I love the fact that's how you were perceiving that. What's your thoughts? And see what's Miss, I think it was Miss Sexton. She was an English teacher in high school. And she was brilliant because one of the things that would trigger me is when a teacher would call me out in front of everybody and put me on blast. And that was like fight night. It was like, okay, now it's on. So you want to embarrass me? I'm about to embarrass you. And so Miss Sexton was so slick and smooth because, you know, me, I'm in English class. I'm in this, uh, I, I'm freshman year, I'm in this AP, pre-AP English class. All the smart little pretty girls are in the class. So I'm trying to be at the pretty girl table and talk to them. And instead of calling me out, like, Jonathan, get back to your seat. You need to pay attention. She walks over and she puts a sticky note on the desk that says, come see me when we break out for study time. And so I read that. And she's teaching and then we break out for our reading time or whatever it was. And I pick up the sticky note and I go over and I'm like, yes, ma'am. And that's where she interacts with me. She's like, hey, I noticed this was happening. I didn't want to interrupt you, but I need you to do this for me so that we can get through class and you don't get distracted. And for me, I was just like, dang, that was cool. Like she could have called me out and put me on blast and all the girls would have laughed at me. And then I would have been offended and made a scene. But she addressed it in a way that was appropriate for me. And I took it to heart. I was like, that was dope. Like she had my back. So I'm about to show her I can have her back too. Okay. And it changed. It changed the dynamic. It was like finding those creative ways to like connect with your students on a personal level instead of just delivering punishment or redirection. Talk to the human being that's sitting in that desk. Because for as long as you got to be standing up there teaching, they got to be sitting there listening. <laughs> so we're in the same boat together. Yeah. I, I can tell you is the dozen episodes I've recorded so far and everything else. I cannot tell you how many people have said exactly what you just said, Jonathan, the human part. And there was a gentleman the other day, if uh, listeners have not listened to Joe Beckman's episode, he says, sometimes we're so busy about being extraordinary, we forget to just be ordinary. And he used the word ordinary to replace the word vulnerable because sometimes vulnerable makes us uncomfortable with that word. So he just talked about being ordinary and he did it. And he said, and when teachers are like, but I don't know how to be ordinary, or I don't know how to get to know the kids because, and this is one thing I do preach, be di- everybody's different. I don't expect everybody to be Jonathan Brown or Kevin Curtis, right? right? You, right. Th- every teacher is different. I just tell them, figure out how to be you, but yet be ordinary and be human versus the deliver of content and information in the classroom. Because 
particularly with today's information age, and you get this being an avid, we, we had a student speak one time, but I says, if you don't connect with us, why should I content with you? Because at the end of the day, all the information is out there on the internet. We're in Different. the information age. So does that resonate yeah, with you yeah. too? Yeah. You know, Dr. Mitra says, if what, you can, if what you do can be done by a computer, it should be. And what computers can't do are the relationship and the growing and the empowering of learners. Yeah. But they can't administer information. Yes. All right. Let's. Sorry. Side. That was a side one. Let's go back. So yeah. here you are in high school, brother. I. I just remember when I heard your story. I want you to take me and the listeners to that opportunity where that teacher. And I apologize. I don't remember all the specifics, but you had no, that one golden. teacher. But it was also like making some maybe borderline decisions in high school, getting yeah. in a car. And, and to yeah. me, that was like a pivotal point where when I heard your story, I was like, wow. So can you take us there? Absolutely. So there was this idea in high school that I was a smart kid <laughs> and it started bubbling up with my algebra two teacher. His name was David Dybul. And he decided to recommend me for the AVID program halfway through my freshman year. And this is the second time I'm hearing it. And the second time I'm like, that's not for me. Don't do it. That's not for me. And so what I figured I would do was get a chance to skip class and tell him that I went to the interview. And I, I take the application that he gives me. And as I walk out of the classroom, I crumble it up and I throw it away. I go about my business. I'm like, hey, I get to go to BNC lunch now. So I was excited. And uh, the next day I get back to school and all my friends is like, yo, John, go check out your locker. And I'm like, what? They're like, go look at your locker. This is back in the day when we used to use those metal things that were built into the schools, the little combination. We used to use those, actually. I don't know if (laughs) students know, but there's like magical wall, like a room in there where you could store stuff. But so I'm like, why y'all want me to go look at my locker? And they're like, no, go check out your locker. And I'm like, is the drug dog here? And that's because we used to share share our locker. So I'm like, I don't want to get caught up in nothing that y'all been doing. And so they're like, no, go look. And so I start walking. And, and, and back when I was in high school, when somebody was crushing on you, they would tape candy bars to your locker with little notes. So my little chunky self is thinking, ooh, somebody got a crush. So I'm starting to put on a little jog to get to my locker. And by the time I get close enough, I realize there are no candy bars on my locker. And, but there is this crumpled up application with this little sticky note that says, you will go to this avid interview, D squared. And I'm like, man, this guy is bugging. Like, why is he bugging so much? But he was relentless. So I took the crumpled up application. I walked down the hallway. I show him, hey, Mr. D squared, I'm going to go. His name was David Dybul, but we all called him D squared because he was a math teacher. He was a goofy man. <laughs> and so I walked down to the avid classroom and this is where I meet her. Like, I meet Miss Tallman. But still in my head at the time, I'm like, this isn't for me. I'm just going to go through the motions so they get off my back and they let me go about my business. And so I go in there and I try to iron out the application, make it smooth. And I hand it to her. She snatches it up, crumbles it up, throws it away. I'm like, cool, I'm out. She's like, no, come here. She pulls out a nice, crisp, clean application. She gives it to me and says, go out into the hallway, fill it out. And when you're ready, you come see me. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I see how you are. So I go out there and I'm still being the cocky kid that I am. I'm like, she think I'm dumb. So I'm answering every question as articulately as I can. Like I'm literally like using all of my SAT words. I'm being as smart as I can be putting hearts as periods and smiley faces to dot my eyes. And I go back in there and I have my avid interview and she hit me with just questions about myself, things I like to do, people I like to hang out with. And I'm telling her what I thought were all the right answers. Then the conversation gets serious. She goes, Jonathan, what do you want to do with your future? I got this, right? I want to go to college. I want to graduate, get a job and make lots of money. That's the quote unquote right answer. 
but I did not tell her this. I broke for the first time in my life. I had never told anybody that I was a foster kid. Like I kept that secret to my death because you know how kids would do when they find out stuff about you. So I kept it. But for whatever reason, when she asked me that question, I broke down and I told her everything. I said, Miss Tallman, I don't have a future. And this is why. And I just went into the whole story. And by the end of it all, I, I expected her to feel sorry for me because that's usually the response that you get when someone finds out. But she did not feel sorry for me. She said, you know what, Jonathan, there's a lot of things in life that you're going to have to go through that make you sit back and think, why did this have to happen to me? She said, but every time you're met with one of those moments, if you choose to work and overcome it, your future becomes exponentially brighter. And I'm like, I don't understand. I don't know how that works. Like I've been overcoming obstacles my whole life and my stuff still stinks. And then she started talking about this place called college. And in college, they have dorms. That's a place to sleep. And in college, they have cafeterias. That's a place to eat. So for me, in my head, at 14, 15 years old, knowing that when I turn 18, I'm going to get kicked out of foster care, college was the best place for me to go because I could pretend that I came from a great family who has great jobs and sent me to this great college and I can get scholarships so I can pay for it. And nobody would have to know that I was one of those lost children, one of those foster kids, one of those, orphans. I could be the great person from the great family that I wanted to be. I convinced myself. I said, okay, cool. This college thing, what do I got to do? And, and she started to, we started to go, we started to get into Avid, started to do these things. And it was hard, man. It was like a whole nother layer of extra work on top of, I was just trying to be regular and not a single kid in Avid was trying to be regular. They were all trying to be exceptional, all trying to overcome barriers. And it got to this point where I'm senior year. I done, I done changed my life. I done changed my attitude. I done made straight A's in all my AP classes. I done made impressions on the community. We did community service. And we had this responsibility in Avid of having 40 hours a year of community service. And of course, as seniors, we procrastinated. And we all got this brilliant idea that we're going to host a Relay for Life event on our track, on our practice field at Shoemaker High School. And if we do it all day, if we work on it all day and we work on it all night, we can get at least two days worth of community service hours. And so I convinced my foster parents, it's an all-nighter. I convinced my foster parents to let me stay out all night. And it's my senior year. And I'm ready. I'm like, okay, cool. So my foster dad talks to my avid teacher and she says, yes, she's going to be there. So it's going to be okay. My dad drops me off and I hang out in the parking lot a little bit until he drives off. And when he drives off, I jump into my homeboy's Cadillac because we're ready to go party. Like it's our senior year. We're going to go have fun. We're going to have a few drinks. Cut loose. This is the first time I had ever planned. My heart is pounding. Like I had never, like I snuck out of the house before, but like I've never planned to go to a high school party. I've never planned to drink. My mother and father were Catholic. That was a no-go. So I'm ready. My heart's pounding. I'm in the car. I'm ready to go. And here come Miss Tallman. Y'all seen Jonathan? Where's Jonathan? His dad told me he was here. Where's Jonathan? My boys are laughing. I'm like, hey, let's go. Let's get out of here. And he's not, hold on, we waiting. And I'm like, yo, she about to get me. Let's go. So I hide in the back seat and I pull my letterman over my head. And she knocks on the window. And she goes, I see your big self in the back seat. Come on out. Like I got my last name real big on the back of my letterman. So she pulls me out of the car. I proceed to explain to her like, hey, we're going to go to the gas station to get some snacks. You want a Dr. Pepper? Because I know you like diet Dr. Pepper. And she said, no, I got mine. Come on in. I told you dad you're going to be with me. Come in. So I tell my homeboys, I can't go. I go inside. I have one of the best nights of my life. We meet amazing people who overcome ridiculously hard obstacles. We raise a lot of money. We do a fashion show. We walk a lot of steps. Like It was so much fun. And by the end of the night, we all start getting texts. You see, my friends, first of all, were not my friends. They was kids I was trying to get cool with. And they wanted me to come with them. 
with the guys that we were going to party, but they were going to go hit a lick, which means they were going to go rob this new little the, selling your parents prescription pills was really popular when I was in high school. So they was going to go rob this Jamaican kid who was doing it right, who used to go to another school and now goes to ours. I did not know that they were going to do that, but they wanted me to come because I was a big dude. Like I had the muscles like they wanted me to be intimidating or whatever. I had no idea. So that night they go out and they finna hit this. They hit this lick on this Jamaican kid and his uncle's there and his uncle sticks his arm in the car, boom, and finishes the clip in the back seat. Mm. Whose big self would have been laid up in that back seat? Looking wow. stupid. Miss Miss Tallman literally interrupted my life. Wow. She took me off the path that I was on and she kept me on a path to success. And I was a senior. Everybody had already poured so much into me. They had prepared so much for me and I was ready to ruin it that night. Now, this is not to say don't have fun, don't live life, don't experience, but it's be smart about your choices and be smart about the connections because not only did all those people pour so much into me to get me to where I was, I did a lot of work. I did a tremendous amount of shifting and adjusting and work to get to where I was. And I was ready to throw all of that away on one night to have fun a few months before I was about to go to college, which was like every night was having fun. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So I, I am eternally and forever carved in stone that memory of this woman who just would not stop interrupting my life. She just unwaveringly and consistently and every opportunity she had, she was going to interrupt me. And it was an interruption because at the time I didn't want it. At the time I was upset with her that she wasn't going to let me go have fun. I, at the time I didn't know that she was saving my life. Absolutely. I, I just keep listening. As you pointed out, Jonathan, the, the common theme of the blessings in your life is you have been, you've, you've experienced these adults, as you've pointed out, that when they're done, they just keep coming. They're, they're yeah. relentless in your words as a kid, but they continue to not give up on you. And I think that's something that, as I said, I'm jealous because it took me so long to figure out to not give up on kids. I, I have a young man that I definitely want you to meet who I met when he was 11 and uh, dad was in prison. He was acting out like you were a lot. And I just saw... I saw something in him that those educators saw in you. And I said, man, you are different. And when I've been with him and he's 20 years old now. And so for the last nine years, we always have this conversation. It's hard because I will tell you, Jonathan, there have been moments where I've even had to ask myself, what does the word commitment really mean? No, and I'm being, listen, I'm going to be very vulnerable. I have a Christian counselor. And, and one day I said, I need to visit with you. And she was like, what's going on? I said, I need to, I need to really understand what the word commitment really means to me. Because this kid at 20 years old, I've been in, I've been two feet in with this kid for nine flipping years. And it, and it, and as you said earlier, I want to be, I'm not even an educator now. I'm just a human being. I'm just a person now. But I want to be, I want to just say, F it. I'm out. I I, I can't Mm -hmm. do this anymore. Much like you were saying earlier, right? Like we say, I've done everything that you mentioned earlier. I said to myself, I've done everything. There's nothing more I can do. And so it was interesting because as 
is, is I started to have to question my idea of commitment and what does that mean? And understanding for me, I'm going to go really personal here for a second, but I, I, at the minute I start to think that God, I didn't give up on you. You know what I mean? Like as a father figure. And I will tell you, he cracked me one day. He cracked me and he made me like really figure out what commitment looked like. We were on the phone and I was ripping his butt, Jonathan. And I thought that's what he needed. I thought he needed a butt whipping, butt ripping, sorry, not not whipping, but I was ripping his butt and lecturing him and and how, you know, what do we, how many times have we talked about this and all this stuff? And he said, what what if I had 2% on my phone? You want me to, you want to be the one person I want to call he was like, but all you do is, is you're not there for me like that. And I said, okay, what does that even mean? We're yelling at each other. And he's like, why can't you just be the dad that I need you to be? And I promise you, if you'll be the dad I need you to be, I promise you. And he is in tears, breaking his voice. He's, I promise you, I won't let you down and I'll be the son that you're going to be. And I Ooh. was like, Jonathan, I was standing in my closet. I know exactly where I was standing. And it was on the phone and I was like, I was like, okay, okay. And all I can tell you, brother, man, is from that point forward, Yeah, I can tell you it wasn't easy. And I say this because you can't give up on your kids. Yeah. The next three times I saw him, I had to tell myself. Okay, Kev, come on, Kevin. Keep, that's exactly, except, and I would go to him and I said, all right, look, brother, we got your taxes done. He has yeah. a baby now. He has a lot of things. And I want you to meet this kid one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, I, happen, but, but I'm coming to him and as I'm talking to him, I'm having to literally think, all right, Kevin, don't go there. Don't, because he'd be like, um, this and that. And, and I'm like, I would escalate. I could feel my mm-hmm. energy wanting to just rip his butt. And I'm like, no, just love him. And I'm like, that's okay. And all I can tell you, that was about two months ago. I have totally transformed our, I say now, a relationship mm-hmm. where the other day he, he called me angry and, and now I don't even get angry. I'm like, mm-hmm. I listened to him and then I'm like, so let's talk, let's break this down. You were upset. How could we have handled this? These types of things. And I, I just, I cannot believe that I wanted to, I did. And I mean, I wanted to give up because I didn't think there was anything else I could do. And the only thing I could do was love him, just love him through it. And I'm almost a hypocrite because towards the end of every one of my trainings and presentation, I say, if you're a black and white minded person, here's a black and white minded slide. And it says, love them or lose them. I'm preaching and teaching to people love them or lose them in my real life I'm with kids them. that I yeah. love them. I'm yeah. willing to lose them because yeah. I'm willing to throw up my hands, brother. So man, yeah. what you're saying today is, so is he, powerful. Kevin, here's the piece that if, if we can, if listeners can hear this and say, okay, I got you. I understand. It clicked for me the way it was supposed to click. What do I do next? Here's something that I feel like I've neglected for a long time. And I'm hearing you have this conversation about, your origin story and how you got to where you're at. There needs to be a space carved out for educators to hear and learn and and bounce off of each other and even pull each other in. Cause there's going to come a time where you and that young man are at it again or at that level. And instead of going to lose, you're going to say, you know what? I'm going to give you a number of somebody I want you to call. And that number you're going to pass to him is mine. And so you don't have to do it by ourselves. 
It's the system that we build around these students because it's not one teacher doing great, great work that transforms the world. It's all of us systematically deciding that there are things we can do that can create a brighter future for all of our kids. And, and we have to have each other's back in these situations. One, to support the kids and two, to support ourselves. Because if we would have been able to have a conversation about that right after it happened, we would have been able to say, hey, you know what? And you could have helped me avoid that same conflict, that same battle with right. another kiddo that I'm mentoring. So how do we create a space for educators, for our leadership to pour into our educators the way we're pouring into our students and the way we're asking our teachers to pour into their students? Because I want, I want restorative justice for my educators. I want to be able to support and mentor and unwaveringly interrupt and never give up. That right there will give them the confidence and the tools they need to do what we're asking them to do. Mm, man, that is powerful, man. Wow. That's why I told you when we first started this episode, I, I have no idea where the conversation's going to go. Yeah. I love the fact that it's free flowing and that we naturally just take and give back and forth in this conversation. But as we start to just start to wind things down, I need people to know who you are today and what yeah. you're doing, brother. So, so yeah. educate them on who you are today. January 19, 2020, I got married to my beautiful wife, Brittany, in Hawaii. And wow. we flew back February, coronavirus hit, and we've been working <laughs> from home ever since. I have been blessed with a beautiful family. I call it my forever family. It's something I have been pursuing since I was probably like mm. six or seven years old, my forever family, because I wanted to do right by the, my forever family the way it wasn't done right by me. My, my foster parents, at the age of 17, when I turned 17, they adopted me. They surprised me with a surprise adoption. And so the parents that I refer to today are Keith and Mercedes Brown. They were my foster parents for a long time. And they ended up committing to being my lifelong family, which gave me the opportunity to come home on the weekends uh, and on long vacations when I was in college. It gave me a place to come home to. It gave me structure to be able to work and not have to pay bills and save money so I can go back to college and buy my books and buy my food. All of the stuff that's essential for kids to survive, my, my parents afforded me. Even though they couldn't financially afford the burden of, of college, I still had a family that I could come home to. I ended up being able to graduate with my master's degree. But before, in, in between my bachelor's degree and my master's degree, I started a motivational speaking company. And I started traveling around the United States, speaking to schools about how I found my voice and about how educators interrupted my life. And that gave me the opportunity to pay for undergrad. And then when I got to grad school, one of my mentors said, hey, here's what you need to do next. And here are some opportunities, which opened up the door for a lot more speeches, which I was able to graduate both undergrad and grad school debt free. As soon as I graduated with my master's degree, I started working with Avid full time as a program manager for Avid for Higher Ed. So for the last 10 years, we were doing what Avid does in school districts uh, for students. We were doing in the higher ed world. So we were working with colleges, universities on strategic planning and professional development training to help get their students through their programs and into their careers. And more recently, I had a beautiful opportunity when COVID-19 hit to pivot on my what and still contribute to my why. And I jumped deeply into the design and development process of professional learning and digital teaching and learning, and which opened the door for me to be able to interact with our marketing team here in Avid. And now I am proudly a, uh, a part of the marketing team with Avid for Higher Ed, or with Avid uh, Center. And 
I'm blessed. My wife and I just recently purchased a home. This is our second home. We have a, a beautiful, healthy, strong second grader who is a lover of learning, but a hater of when she's told to do the learning, <laughs> but brilliant. She is a, she's an avid consumer of podcasts. She loves audible books and she can talk like her daddy. If I would have gave her this microphone earlier, she would have finished out the interview for us. Uh, but life is good. It's been a tremendous amount of blessings. There's still quite a bit as an, as an educator, a tremendous amount of growing that I have to do. Because every time I get to sit in front of brilliant educators, I'm like, what? Yes. And see, I think what helped build me into the educator that I am today was the fact that I got to beg, borrow, and steal all the greatness from brilliant educators. I just sat and consumed it. From eighth grade all the way through college, my educators taught like avid educators. Like our whole district was avidized. We brought avid to my alma mater, uh, University of Texas, the Permian Basin. So as I was entrenched in this way of learning, which ultimately made me this kind of educator. Yeah, the Jonathan Grant Brown of today is somebody who's very happy of all the opportunities that were presented to me. And I'm looking forward to turning around and seeing if I can help some others achieve their dreams too. How do people get a hold of you if they want to learn more about you or learn more about Avid or even just want to reach out to you to say, how do I help not give up on kids? How do we help get a hold of you? Yeah. Create that space. So share that with everybody. Yeah. So you can reach out to me on Twitter at JGB Speaks on Twitter. You can find me uh, through email, which is probably the the second best email is jbrown at avid.org. And I'm going to go ahead and do this. I'm going to give you my cell phone number because when all of this lifts, I'm going to be living on a plane again. And the easiest way to get a hold of me is to send me a text and say, hey, did you see that email I sent you? So it's area code 254. So if you're from Central Texas area, 254, recognized 415-9069. That's Jonathan Grant Brown. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to chat. I've got an opportunity to connect with your schools or your students. I love to brainstorm. Uh, we do a lot of thought partnering things where we just get on a team's call and you have a project to work on and we just bang it out. We're just like, okay, let's, I need a thought partner. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? So it's all about elevating the work, man. Absolutely, brother. Man, you have been a thought partner today. You have, man, brought out so many different things. And so as we wrap up the show, what is your final words? Just anything you want our listeners to take away from something that from Jonathan Brown's heart to educators. What's just a final message that you want our listeners to take away from today? I think it's okay to wake up in the morning and feel like, you don't want to change the world today. It's okay to wake up in the morning and feel like, I don't want to change the world. I don't want to be great. I don't want to be awesome. I don't want to be exceptional. I just want to be okay. I just want to get some healing for myself because the healthy you are for yourself, the healthier you can be for the others that you're trying to impact. So it's perfectly okay to wake up and feel the feels that you feel. And then once you feel those feels, let's put on our shoes Let's put on our shirts and let's get up and let's get out there and let's get after it. Wow. No, I will tell you, I think what you just talked about, the self-care, right? Like I think self-care has become not even pre-pandemic, but just self-care has been something that I think for educators primarily, we have, it's, it's been underrated in, and I think that there are how many people and how much education take a self 
day where they right. just like, uh, I have this going on. No, you don't. It's just, it's a day where you just need a day to take a break and it's, that's okay. Yeah. I always say it's, it's, it's okay to not be okay in education, particularly right, right now. Right. And as you said, it's okay to sit in that and mm-hmm. to go through that. But as you've pointed out, then we got to get back up, put our shoes on, get dressed. PJ's on the bottom, professional on the top, get in front of man. that computer, uh, whatever it is. But no, man, so, I think what I'm taking away from today is just as you said it, man, it's just when you think you can't do any more. Yeah. Dig deeper. And, right. and when I say dig deeper, love more. Give up on everything else. Just love them because just, all the other strategies and all the other things you did and all the lectures and suspensions and all the things, all the extra, just, just all of that's out the window that when you dig deeper, just love more, love more. Jonathan brother, listen, I knew just when I saw your video and I was introduced to you, I was honored and blessed that today would be a great day to have this episode because I knew, I just knew in my heart of hearts that there was going to be powerful conversations and great takeaways. And I cannot thank you for your story, your vulnerability, your ability to be ordinary, but the way that you are able to now help not just transform yourselves and congratulations on that forever family and the new houses and everything going on in your life, man, you have worked hard to get to this point in your life. And I think that's the other thing that we need to take away from today is you never, you always talked about how hard it was for you to work. And I think sometimes kids and adults don't realize the ability that hard work does pay off. So I want to yeah, thank you for the work. Don't hard work, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, you, you said it brother, but thank you for your hard work, your diligence and your ability to give back to education Absolutely. and students and teachers and anyone else that w- that's willing to connect with you. I thank you so much for just who you are as a human being, brother. I appreciate it so much. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate the invite. I look forward to many more. Lastly, I want to thank you, the listener, the educator, the difference maker, Your time is valuable. I see time as an investment, and I want to thank you from the center of my heart for making it to the end of this episode. But please don't let this be the end of our relationship. If you have the same passion for putting relationships and connections at the center of all learning, then I need you to subscribe and share this podcast with other like-minded educators. It would be extremely helpful if you would leave a review or a comment on what you loved about the episode, or better yet, Tell me what you want to hear about more in the future. This way, other educators that are searching for impactful podcasts can get a sense of what this show can offer them. You see, my hopes and prayers are that you were able to find one strategy or one idea that you could take back to one classroom to make a difference for one kid. Thanks for keeping relationships first, and we'll connect with you next time. 